O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness? Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Verse 10. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evidence that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Curse is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we, may, we might receive the promised spirit through faith. This is God's word. Believing in grace is harder than living in grace. That's true as an individual Christian. It's true as a church. I could say it this way. It's easier to name yourself Grace Baptist Church than it is to be a gracious Baptist church. That's because legalism, what we could also call works righteousness, and the accompanying spiritual deadness and hypocrisy is so common to us as human beings. And you'll find it even here. Uh, You've probably heard the the joke of a a witty pastor who encountered a person he was inviting to church, and the guy said to him, Church? I would never go to church. It's full of hypocrites. And the pastor said, No, 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 no. We always have room for one more. Legalism has been a struggle of the church through all of church history. Elizabeth Elliot, in her book, The Liberty of Obedience, tells the story of a a young man who was seeking entrance into a, a Christian school in the second century. And the young man said to a, a professor there, I, I'm in earnest about forsaking the world and following Christ. But I'm puzzled about worldly things. What must I forsake? 
Are you ready? Here's his list. Number one, colored clothes for one thing. Get rid of everything in your wardrobe that is not white. Some of us are in trouble. Number two, stop sleeping on a soft pillow. Number three, sell your musical instruments. Number four, don't eat any white bread. It surprises me that they had white bread all the way back then. Number five, you cannot, if you are sincere about obeying Christ, take warm baths or shave your beard. To shave is to lie against him who created us and to attempt to improve on his work. How are you doing this morning? I think that list is pretty easy for us to laugh at, but legalism, it's a bit like food on our face after we've had a meal. It's evident to everybody else, just not to us. And it's not a laughing matter, ultimately. The, The reducing of our relationship with God to external religious activity can suck the joy and the marrow out of our spiritual lives. This is the way Richard Foster wrote about it in his book, Celebration of the Disciplines. Nothing can choke the heart and soul out of walking with God like legalism. Rigidity is the most certain sign that the disciplines, which he's writing about, have spoiled. Consider, this is him still, the story of Hans the tailor. Because of his reputation and Influential entrepreneur visiting the city ordered a tailor-made suit. But when he came to pick up the suit, the customer found that, that one sleeve twisted this way and the other sleeve twisted the other. One shoulder bulged out and the other shoulder caved in. Well, he, he pulled and, and squeezed his body into the suit and was returning home on the bus. Uh, a stranger said to him, hey, is that suit made by Hans the tailor? He was surprised. Said, y- yes, yes it is. The other man said, amazing. I-, I knew that Hans was a good tailor, but I had no idea he could make a suit fit so deformed a man as you. Often, Richard Foster says, that is just what we do in the church. We get some idea of what the Christian faith should look like then we push and shove people into the most grotesque configurations and then say they fit wonderfully. That is death. That is a wooden legalism which destroys the soul. We've come in the book of Galatians to chapter 3, and we for a number of weeks now have been hearing Paul's argument that there's a vast difference between the message preached by the Judaizers the false teachers who have come along and said, it's fine to have Jesus and all of that, but you had better add circumcision and keeping the Old Testament law too. We don't want slackers around here. We, we don't want loose morals. So if you want to be in the church, you better get with the program. Paul says in chapter 1 that he's astonished that the Galatians would listen to that kind of gospel even for a moment. And then in chapter 2, he recounts his own apostolic testimony, both of receiving and preaching the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Even having to rebuke Peter, one of Jesus' 12 disciples who fell into hypocritical legalism. 
Much of Paul's theology came out in that section, but now the inspired apostle is going to go on the attack. He is going to try to attack the teaching of these false teachers head on. I I was toying with how to communicate this best this morning. I I was thinking a, a vaccine against legalism, but we're kind of tired of vaccines, right? I was thinking about antidote to the poison of legalism, but Eugene last week got me thinking about Uh, You know, he talked about how sometimes amidst conflict, the truth is able to shine forth more clearly, that it's actually the kind of warfare around this thing that that makes the gospel clearer. So uh, let's, let's think about destroying legalism. How is it that you and I, in our individual lives and in our church, can root out and destroy legalism? Maybe you've uh, been following the war in Ukraine and the, the tide that turned in the last couple months because of these mobile artillery that can, with pinpoint accuracy from 20 miles away, destroy targets. Well, I want us to think this morning about three missiles Paul gives us to destroy legalism. So if you're taking notes, and I encourage you to do that so you have something to talk about over lunch later, think about these three points. That'll be an outline of our time. Number one, remember your conversion. Remember your conversion. That'll be verses one through five. Number two, read your Bible rightly. Read your Bible rightly. That'll be verses six through nine. And number three, recognize the curse of the law. Recognize the curse of the law. Remember, read, recognize. Let's dive in number one and think about remember your conversion. I'll read verses one through five again. Follow along in your copy of God's word. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Now, I think we're, we're tempted as we open this chapter and read these words here, O oh, foolish Galatians, I, I think we're tempted to read them too lightly. When you call someone a fool in the Bible, it's not saying that they're merely lacking wisdom. Foolishness biblically has a moral element to it. Paul Paul is saying that what they're doing is sinfully wicked. And then he says, who has bewitched you? Literally, who has cast a spell over you? Some people think that doctrine is not worth fighting over. I, I simply would submit to you that the Apostle Paul does not agree. When things touch on the gospel, the the nature of God, the inspiration of the scriptures, and and most importantly, how it is that you and I as sinful human beings can get to heaven, it is not time for pleasantries for Paul. It bears repeating that Galatians is a book written to Christians saying that they should get rid of pastors who preach a false gospel. 
It's why it's important for you to know and for me to say without any bit of awkwardness that if I or any of the pastors here begin to preach a false gospel, you shouldn't tolerate it. You should get rid of us. But they did tolerate this false teaching in Galatia, and he calls them fools. Uh, Look at how he unpacks it here. It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Uh, This doesn't mean that they were there at the crucifixion, but when Paul preached the gospel to them, he painted a picture for them, both of Jesus' death on the cross and then explaining what it means. And what he told them was if, if they'll turn from their sins and they'll trust in Jesus, then they'll be saved. It's the same message that is coming to us this morning. It doesn't matter what any of us have done in our life up until this point. If we will trust in the sacrifice of Christ on the cross, we'll believe in it, then God pardons us from our sin. He makes us his child, promises us eternal life. They knew about the cross of Jesus Christ and what it meant. But then he says, let me ask you only this, and this makes me laugh a bit because it made me think about my children. Uh, I sometimes, sometimes, uh, will lecture them about something and will say, let me tell you this one thing. And then the lecture goes on for some time with many things. I, I want you to notice how many things he says to them, how many question marks. Let me ask you only this. But I think all of these questions tie together. Let's look at them one by one. Uh, He says, did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Receiving the Spirit refers to their conversion. When, When they came to know Christ, the Spirit is the deposit that God gives the Christian to guarantee their inheritance. He is the one that seals us empowers us for life and ministry, and assures us that we are God's children. And Paul asks this obvious rhetorical question, did your conversion and the indwelling of the Spirit happen because you were zealous about obeying works of the law or by hearing with faith? This is the dichotomy that goes through the whole passage. The false teachers had told them that salvation could only happen through faithful keeping of works of the law. We, we can call this works righteousness. We can call it legalism. We mean the same thing. But the gospel they heard and believed that led to the indwelling of the Spirit was that you hear the message about Jesus and you believe it. He asked another question in verse 3. Are you so foolish having begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? And I think this gets to the heart of what is tempting about this false teaching, believe the true gospel, and then slide into works righteousness. How does that happen? Well, we're told as Christians that as we are to grow in Christ, we have to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We read verses in the, in the Bible about being diligent to add to our faith goodness and to goodness self-control and many other things. So, so we understand that we have a role to play in our growth. But that's a different thing than beginning to think that, okay, Jesus took care of the initial, and now it's up to me in my own strength. When he says the the flesh there, he's referring to our, our, our effort, our own ability to begin trusting in that to ultimately be what gets us to heaven. 
causes us to pass the bar of God's justice. That's a completely different thing. We don't begin with the faith, with faith and the spirit, and then take over and save ourselves through obedience. He asked him in verse 4, did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Christianity was not a legal religion in the Roman Empire. There was real suffering that was attached to their conversion, and they had suffered it. He asked them whether any of that mattered. Since they now want to slide back into Jewish law-keeping, they could avoid more persecution, but he asked them what was the point of their earlier faithfulness. And then in verse 5, does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? The apostolic ministry was accompanied by the working of miracles that confirmed the truth of what was taught, what was preached. Paul again asks whether this happened because they had done a great job of keeping the law or because they heard and believed the gospel. Now, what Paul is doing here is powerful, and it's something that you and I need very desperately. We are so prone to thinking about the gospel as the ABCs of the Christian life rather than as the A to Z of the Christian life. And if we begin trusting in ourselves, not only do we face the same danger as they of of actually getting rid of the gospel, the true gospel ultimately, but we're bound and headed for frustration. You know, you, you could try to fill your name in there. Oh, foolish Mark. Why, after beginning with the Spirit, are you now relying on works of the law to conquer anger in your life, to conquer sexual temptation, to conquer laziness, to conquer pride? Everything in our lives has the potential to sour if we don't trust in God. So every sermon that is preached from this pulpit. You know, there are applications that are coming every week to you. And all of them, we trust, are good. Should should you read your Bible? Yes. Should you come to prayer meetings? Should you devote yourself to, to praying for and trying to evangelize your neighbor? Yes, yes, and yes. Should you try to grow in your Christian life by getting good books and, and meeting up with friends for fellowship and community? Yes. But any of those things can become a legalism in your heart if it is not from faith, trusting in the Spirit to change you and to grow you. So the first thing that that destroys legalism is remembering how we were converted and realizing that the whole of the Christian life is a reliance on God. Paul gives us a second thing that destroys legalism beginning in verse 6. It's point number two, read your Bible rightly. Just as Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Now, there was a common Jewish reading of the life of Abraham that centered on what happens in Genesis 22. You remember that there God told Abraham to offer his son Isaac, the child of promise, as a sacrifice on Mount Moriah. And amazingly, 
Abraham trusts God, uh, and he is at the point of offering Isaac when God stops him. But coming out of that, God makes promises to bless Abraham and his descendants because of that obedience. So the, the common Jewish reading of the life of Abraham then is that obedience is the pathway to blessing. And these false teachers drew a line from Abraham through the law given to Moses on Mount Sinai, and then all the way through to the church. And, you know, that, that makes them very similar to, way, to the way other religions of the world work, right? I mean, the ones that believe in a creator God inevitably have to describe how we as human beings can be acceptable to that God. How can we earn his favor? So, I've found that taxi drivers in Shanghai are quite similar to taxi drivers in Singapore. They are the ones that I'm often talking to. So some of the things are different. I tend to talk to more Buddhists and atheists in, in China and, and more Muslims and free thinkers, so-called here. But as I talk to them about religion, I often hear the same thing, which is that religions are basically the same. They're basically about us being as good as we can be. Don't lie, don't cheat, don't steal. Be, be true to your, your family commitments. You know, those sorts of things will make you acceptable to God. That's the common view of religion. And it was the view of the Judaizers. It's how they read their Old Testament. But Paul says that they're just not reading their Bibles rightly. They're not reading carefully. Do you see that phrase, just as, there? Just as we were converted by faith, that's what he had said in 1 through 5, let's go back to Genesis and ask, how was Abraham saved? In Genesis 15, Abraham is lamenting that he doesn't have an heir, that his servant Eliezer is going to be his heir. And God says, no, your son from your own body is going to be your heir. Takes him outside and shows him the night sky with all the stars. And he says, so shall your offspring be. What the text says there is that Abraham believed God and God counted it to him as righteousness. He reckoned it to Abraham. Abraham was not faithful and in, in trusting even up to that point or, or obeying God, and, and that's why he had righteousness. No, God counted the righteousness to him because of his faith at that point. He connects how Abraham was saved then back to Genesis 12. This is so interesting because as we've said, the, the first three verses of Genesis 12 are a summary of the Bible storyline. That God's going to take this one man, Abraham, and he's going to give him descendants and ultimately all the peoples of the earth are going to be blessed through him. So a worldwide plan of God is starting with Abraham. Genesis 12 is the what? All nations will be blessed through you. Well, Genesis 15 is the how by people believing the promises of God. How do you get in on this blessing of God? What is the means? What is the instrument by which a person like you or me? We, we aren't of the family of Abraham physically, not most of us. How do the blessings, the promise of God come to us? Through trusting, through believing, through faith. 
You know, one of the reasons we feel strongly here about expositional preaching, where we walk through books of the Bible and we don't, we don't skip anything. We don't look at a, a part of Scripture and say, okay, what do we think Grace Baptist Church needs the most right now? That's not how we tend to approach the preaching calendar here. It, it's because we hope that you are being trained to read your Bibles rightly, to fit the pieces together. If you're going to fit the pieces of Abraham's life together, you can't overlook how it all came about. I was thinking that the teaching of the prosperity gospel uh, preachers uh, often focuses on the life of Abraham. Do you know that? The, the irony is that they read Abraham the same way the Judaizers did. They look at him and say, look at this man who, who was so faithful in the way that he lived. If, if you live like Abraham, you'll be blessed like Abraham. It's like they're not even reading the book of Galatians. The inspired author is teaching us here not to read our Bibles looking for transactional blessing. If Abraham believed and then was counted righteous, and as an overflow of his relationship with God, he wants to trust God and obey him in life, it wasn't transactional for him, and it's not transactional for us. If we want to destroy legalism in our lives, We've got to get rid of that kind of transactional thinking. I was thinking if it, parents of, of teenagers and then as kids move into their early 20s, uh, I may just be thinking of myself here, uh, they, they are very clear about what they don't want out of parenting oftentimes. You know, you can get caught up as a, as a parent of very young children thinking, if I could just get them to obey, my life would go so much smoother. And it's true, Right? But as your kids get older, do, do you just want, do you just hope that your 18-year-old your will keep obeying the house rules? Not because they, they, they love you and, and want a relationship with you, but just, just to make your life go smoothly. No. The things that parents want desperately as their kids get older is a relationship with them where there is a trust, but it's founded on love. When you open your Bible and you read it, do you read it as a love letter written by a heavenly father that wants that kind of a relationship with you? Or do you just read it looking for the house rules, the rules that you might keep that, that might allow you to feel like you can pat yourself on the back, like you, you're, you're, you're a decent Christian, maybe, maybe the kind of rules that will make you feel a little bit superior to those around you. Don't read your Bible that way. God loves you. He wants a, a close relationship of trust with you. We were gathering as uh, youth leaders uh, yesterday and, and um, thinking about marriage and sexuality. Uh, we looked at this verse from the Song of Solomon. Song of Solomon, chapter 8, verse 7. If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. You know, sometimes romantic love can teach us about biblical love. I think that's why God has invested love and marriage with the picture that it is. You don't offer your wealth for love because it's not transactional. So friends, reading our Bibles, our Bibles rightly is the second way to destroy legalism. Let's consider a third and final way. It's the most powerful 
That's to recognize the curse of the law. Let's continue in verse 10. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessings of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. So we're blowing up the false teaching of works righteousness or legalism. Here Paul gives us this nice definition of it. All who rely on works of the law, all who trust in their obedience of God's law to establish their right relationship with God and then the blessings they expect to get from God. And this third missile to blow it up here, not just... Not only did you not get saved this way, and not only shouldn't you read your Bibles this way, this final one, recognize that the curse is on you when you go about things this way. We have a number of Old Testament quotations here. Um, They basically set up two different paths, so let's take them one by one. Verse 10, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the law to do them. So basically, if you don't keep the whole law, all things written in the law, if you don't do them, you're cursed. This is not just quoted from anywhere. This is Deuteronomy 27. Deuteronomy is that second exposition of the law. And all through the pages that we read in Deuteronomy, it's it's one law after another. Finally, the conclusion is the curses and the blessings that were pronounced over Israel from Mount Ebal. Deuteronomy 27 is just a list of curses. Cursed is the man who makes an idol. Cursed is the man who dishonors his parents. Cursed is the one who perverts justice. Cursed is the one who is sexually immoral. Cursed, cursed cursed. And then this verse is the climax. Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things in the law by doing them. So if you want to avoid the curse, do the law, keep the law, but make sure it's all of it. Then you can be righteous by the law. If not, you're cursed. Verse 11, we have a second quotation, the righteous shall live by faith. And he gives it a, a preface It's evident nobody is justified by the law. Apparently, nobody succeeds in the righteous by law category because God had to create another category, another pathway to life through faith. This pathway wouldn't be necessary if life through the law was possible. He's quoting here from the book of Habakkuk. You remember the the prophet is, is complaining to God because judgment that is coming on Israel for their sin is coming by the Babylonians who are even more sinful. Habakkuk doesn't know how to reconcile how that is just. So he he takes his stand on the ramparts and says, I will wait an answer. And God says two things to him. First, 
the revelation awaits the appointed time. So Habakkuk, you're not going to fully understand this, but there are people coming in one day that will understand it. And then secondly, the righteous shall live by faith. The point is that the law has created an impossible situation. So God creates a different pathway. Third quotation in verse 12. The two pathways are mutually exclusive. So law reliance and faith reliance are two different things. He says the law is not of faith. And he backs this up with a quotation from Leviticus 18. It's another key chapter in the Old Testament law where God said, you shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them, meaning find life by them. The word to underline there is does. Paul's hoping that you will see that the, the life through law pathway, which nobody succeeds in, is tied to the the doing, not the believing. The life through faith pathway is completely different. And now we have a climax, because the tension that is created in verses 10 through 12 is unresolved. There's a curse over those who fail to keep the law. We fail to keep the law. No way we can do it. God has created a pathway of faith. But how does that resolve the curse? You can hear the howling of the religious leaders at this point, saying of Jesus, he eats with tax collectors, prostitutes, sinners. You can hear the cries of the righteous down through the ages saying, if you're lax on the law, where is the justice? Where is the curse that should come? Verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Deuteronomy 21 describes a man who's committed a capital offense. He's executed for a crime. He committed. He's hung on a tree as a public display of his guilt, his shame. This man It's under the curse of God. Paul is well aware that many are wrongly crucified. He's not saying there's something automatic about being hung on a tree that means you're under God's curse. But he is saying that the guilty man's humiliation in death is a picture of God's judgment on him. God's curse is on it. Now we should ask what God's curse means. I think probably the easiest way to understand it is as the opposite of his blessing. If God's blessing was Eden, then God's curse was being banished from paradise. If God's blessing is the ironic blessing, it's a prayer I pray over my kids when they're young, too young to pray with me. I pray them over their their crib or their bed at night. May the Lord bless you keep you. May he make his face to shine upon you, be gracious to you. May he lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace both now and forevermore. It's a picture of the favor of God. He's watching over his child. Whatever short-term trouble they're in, their long-term is all good and all blessing. Well, here we would have to think about the opposite. 
May the Lord curse you. May the Lord cast you out with eyes too pure to look on evil. Banish you from his very presence. Consider you his enemy, both now and forevermore. We could go on walking through the Bible. We could go to the Beatitudes, the blessed R's that Jesus spoke of. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And we'd have to think about the opposite of those. God's curse is to be shut out of all of that. Be cast into outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And all of that is what we have to somehow make sense of when we read those words. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. It, it doesn't say he took the curse for us. It doesn't say he bore the curse. It says that he became a curse. You know, when you read the accounts of the crucifixion in the Gospels, it, it, it's events. And they're, they're presented with great simplicity. And they crucified him. And then we read of the soldiers casting lots for his clothing. We, we see the, the gathered leaders mocking him. We hear his words from the cross. Ultimately, the cry of dereliction, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? the darkness that came over the land, all of those events are left to communicate the meaning to us. But Paul puts it in one simple phrase here. Do you want to know what's happening on the cross? Jesus Christ became a curse. And I, you know, I was thinking, I... I'm preaching to you. I'm supposed to explain what that means. And I, I don't know how to grasp that. You know, in the high priestly prayer, when, when Jesus prayed that, that the Father would glorify him with the glory he had with him before the world began, we have to think here of the, the triune God, the one God, Father, Son, and Spirit existing in a love relationship from all eternity. You remember the words of the Father from heaven? This is my beloved Son. He loves the Son. And the Son always did what pleased Him. He, he came and lived and fulfilled all righteousness. How could this one become the curse of God? Or those words we saw. If you think of sin but lightly, nor suppose the evil great, here you see its nature rightly, here its guilt may estimate. Mark the sacrifice appointed. See who bears the awful load. Tis the word the Lord cemented, Son of man and Son of God. Friends, legalism cannot stand if you're paying attention to the curse of God. It can't stand. You say, ah, uh, it's such a burden to serve God. Well, you, you, you haven't seen this. You can't see. Because if you see what Jesus Christ did for sinners, and your heart is not moved, then of course you're going to be a legalist. But if your heart is moved, 
if you see that we who had no hope now have hope because of him, then seeking him is not drudgery, it's love. It's no burden at all. How does he finish there? So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Three missiles to destroy legalism. This last one is the most powerful. What are the implications for the church? Well, we won't be a club. We'll be a community, a community of the redeemed. What's the implication for you as a Christian? Hope and joy. Mostly hope. We had no hope, but he became a curse for us. And friends, he is hope enough. Let's pray. Our Father, you have been so good to us in Jesus Christ, and we pray this morning that you would give us faith, you would give us hope, and you would give us joy because of what he did. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.